Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. For more information, please go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Our sponsor is CFS Financial, Christian Financial Solutions. We work with Christian schools, churches, and parachurch ministries, and some for-profit companies on matters ranging from financing new projects to new real estate projects to renegotiating debt and all matters financial and governance related, including strategic planning. That's CFS Financial. You can also get more information about CFS Financial from our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Thank you for your support of Relentless Truth. As we said last time, we've crossed the mid-year point, and this has really been a blessing to uh, to do, to receive your feedback. Today is second in a two-part series, if I can call it that, on critical race theory. We decided to tackle this very challenging subject last week. We presented kind of an overview, and today we're going to do a quick review, in case you missed that episode, and explain exactly what critical race theory is and how Christians should view critical race theory. And then we are going to get in the weeds and we're going to say, okay, today we're going to talk about what this means to us. What are we to do with this? How do we react to critical race theory? What is it? Is it is it really in our schools? Is it not in our schools? How do we know it when we see it? And what in the world is this movement and this organization called Black Lives Matter? What is that? And what does that have to do with critical race theory? So I'm going to, as I did last week, borrow from others. I acknowledge that uh, Vody Bauckham is kind of a, a leading guy, a leading theologian in this arena. You can find him all over the internet. He's affiliated with the Gospel Coalition. He's affiliated with American Gospel Television, that is AGTV. I would encourage you to check them out. They provide a streaming service that is unique. And I had a guest on weeks ago, Russell Berger, who is involved in that effort. He has both a podcast and an actual series on uh, AGTV. He and his wife are featured his wife is uh, Catherine Berger and has a, a terminal illness, and their their lives are well chronicled, as they were in the American Gospel film 1 and 2. And for those of you not familiar, uh, agtv.com is a, a good place to go for more resources there. But critical race theory, we talked about the fact that it's not just this modern idea, it's not something that is always clearly identified. In fact, it has its roots in Marxism. And the, I guess the common theme, when you kind of pull the camera back and you look at the world of big ideas, which, which really is important when we look at our ideology, even as we study theology, it's important to understand how we learn, how we, how we know. Epistemology is the big fancy word for that. But uh, we're going to look at critical race theory broadly today, not as a, a movement per se, not as a curriculum in school, but as an idea, as a concept. And it goes back to Marxism, as we said, and it really, to understand it clearly, what we have to do is look at the oppressed and the oppressor. And so critical race theory says that, and Marxism says that the oppressor doesn't realize that he or she is oppressive. To the oppressed. In fact, they're so blinded, they're so drunk on their power, on their advantage, on their upper hand, on their dominance, 
on their ability to oppress and the the advantage that brings, the unfair advantage that brings. They're so locked onto that that they they can't even see that they are oppressive. They don't see it. They don't get it. And so for Marxism to work, for critical race theory to work, the oppressed must rise up in a revolutionary way. And that's the nice way to say it. And so tools like protests, like mob action, and even violence en masse can be utilized with clear conscience by the oppressed because they're simply what they're doing when they take these actions, when they rip down another monument, when they do something that is otherwise frowned upon by society in sociological terms, by groups of people in society, if they're doing so with a greater good, with a good purpose in mind, which is creating awareness, creating this awareness so that the oppressor can become woke. And we're going to talk about what that is. If what we're doing might otherwise be wrong, it's now right. If we even believe in right and wrong, it's now right. If we have the goal of making the oppressor aware that they are oppressive. So hope that makes sense. The biblical worldview uh, we talked about last week is that we are part of one race, the human race, and we are in one of two groups. We are all part of the first group. We are born in sin. We're born in Adam. We are born sinners. And if we have trusted in the finished work of Christ, the, the grace of God, repentance and regeneration by faith are the bases for being in Christ. So if we've trusted in him, if we're relying on him, then we are part of this second group. They're really, from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective, they're really just two sociological camps in this respect, at least. So with critical race theory and Marxism, we talked about the fact that Karl Marx saw the world as headed toward utopia via the deconstruction of all oppressive systems. Whereas the Bible sees the world culminating toward ultimate restoration through the person and, and work of Jesus Christ. So in critical race theory, the main oppressors are white, cisgender, heteronormative, that is attracted to the opposite sex, Christian males. And to the critical race theorists, this group controls the ideology of society. We call the group that the hegemony, the group that, that controls the, the power, owns the power, sets the stage, controls the ideology, controls the big ideas that are embraced by society. So these oppressors, the critical race theory says, they don't even know that they are oppressive. They, they have systemic power over the legal, cultural, and all other institutional structures that define our civilization. And they don't fault white people for this. They, they believe that we are blinded by prejudice and subconscious bias against racial minorities in particular. So we also talked last time about intersectionality. That is the, the intersecting levels of oppression, whether it's race, whether it's gender, transgender, and other issues. So the more intersectionality features a person has, critical race theory suggests that they there's an increase in their level of oppression. We can analyze the level of oppression by looking at the number of intersectionality factors. Then finally, we talked about equity and equality. They sound like similar terms, but in critical theory, Marxism and critical race theory, Equity is, is this equal representation in outcomes. So if we have equity, then all teams kind of win about the same amount. Or all teams that go through, all groups that go through some sort of selection process will reflect in, if we're talking about the intersectionality feature race in particular, then every group will if properly chosen, if proper selection criteria are used, 
and equity is achieved, then that group will represent the society at large that it draws from. So if the representation of white to black or African-American in society is is 50-50, then groups selected from that society should have that representation. That's a little bit of a simplification, but you get the idea. And you probably are familiar with the Ivy League lawsuit where I believe it is Asian students at large, but Indian students in particular and their families have taken a couple of class actions to remediate their exclusion from admission to certain schools to in an effort by those schools to achieve equity. Equality, on the other hand, is fairness of opportunity. And that's what we as Christians should be all about. But there is a quite a distinction between equity and equality. Those words aren't always used well uh, in the media in particular, but equity is one of the stated goals of of most who embrace critical race theory. So that's our review. Now to get to where the rubber really hits the road, there's a view that says that there's a little bit of an either or fallacy. There's a view that says that it's it's morally wrong not to support critical race theory or even Black Lives Matter. Or it goes maybe like this, failure to support critical race theory means that you're a white supremacist. Or if you don't quite support everything about Black Lives Matter, you might be a bigot. Or if you fail to really understand critical race theory and and support it as an underlying ideology, you're at least a racist. Or maybe you're not quite a full-on racist, but you've embraced some of the tenets of racism. So the biblical view of this is quite clear. There's this notion, this either-or fallacy, though, is interesting. It's, It's morally wrong not to support critical race theory or even Black Lives Matter. And we see this even embraced in the church. Even before we get to what should we do as Christians, and, and I'm not suggesting for a second that we ignore some of the underlying issues, but I am suggesting that we can't embrace critical race theory in full. We can't do it. And there are some biblical reasons for that and, and some logical reasons for that. First of all, this notion of reparations, this notion of the oppressed rising up and making the oppressor aware is what we call becoming woke today. Now, I, I mentioned that I, I use that. I misused that word a couple of years ago in class and my students quickly corrected me. But it's really being woke today has come to mean being alert to injustice in society, particularly regarding racism. Now, should we white Christians and Christians of all all ethnicities, should we be concerned about racism? Yes. Should we be woke in that sense, alert to injustice, true injustice in society? Yes. Yes, but what woke has come to mean is the oppressor has suddenly seen the light. You see, the oppressor was incapable, we said, to the critical race theorist of getting this because they benefit from the oppression And they reach this point where light goes on and you see this in corporate America. You see this effort to demonstrate this light going on and, oh, I get it now. I'm with you. I'm not blind anymore. I get it. And now I see the light. I understand how important critical race theory is. Or now I can support Black Lives Matter in this way, if not in all ways. So because of this, this, labeling that goes on, these things I mentioned earlier, white supremacy, bigotry, racism. Because of this, it becomes politically correct to declare one's wokeness in individuals, families, in groups, in companies, in industries. It's almost a Pavlovian response to this this underlying ideology, CRT and Marxism. We don't want to be labeled. I, I certainly don't want to be labeled a white supremacist. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with white supremacy. Even those subtle 
bits of racism that I talked about last time, if you missed it, I talked about a friend, African-American friend who, a good friend who talked about driving while being black. And you've heard comedians talk about that. Even subtle forms of racism, I don't want to participate in. I don't like it when I read some statistics, I hear anecdotes, or I experience even little bits of racism. And I hope most people, I believe most people, most Christians have some level of sensitivity there and have that aspiration as as well. So the question is, this ideology underpins this thinking that we're talking about, this critical race theory slash Marxism, at least the tenets, the big ideas, they might not call it that, but this ideology underpins modern society. Whether or not it's clearly labeled or identified, it underpins the world that we encounter ideologically. So what are we to do with this? I mean, we have critical race theory, this ideology that that says there's oppression that's going on and the oppressed doesn't know that they're oppressing. How are we to look at this as Christians? Do we say, I, I support critical race theory because it, it sounds like a really bad idea? Well, no, we can't support, I believe we can't support critical race theory as Christians because it is undermining it. One of its stated goals is to undermine the, the family. Some call it the nuclear family, the traditional family. It certainly does not support Christian family values. When the world is couched in terms of the oppressed and the oppressor, then the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the, 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 the bourgeoisie being the ruling class, the proletariat, the working class, when you couch it that way, we can't support that view of the world as Christians. Can we, can we be nuanced thinkers and still say, yes, some workers are, are mistreated in capitalism. There are some who have power who take advantage of that power. At the time that I'm recording this, uh, Jelaine Maxwell has just been uh, found guilty and is about to be sentenced coming up in a few months. And she, uh, she and Epstein were certainly guilty of abusing wealth and power and mistreating people. Companies throughout the years have mistreated people. And sometimes that looks like making them work off the clock uh, or otherwise breaking the law. That happens in capitalism. We can be honest about that. Is there, is there a glass ceiling in some, yes. Uh, in some industries, yes. But the question becomes, is critical race theory, is Marxism, are these Marxist tenets are they going to solve this problem? And can a Christian embrace those ways of thinking? And the answer, in my opinion, in my strong opinion, is a very clear no. No, we can't. That does not make us white supremacists, bigots, or racists. It, I believe, makes us wise. We can say in the next breath that we want to right wrongs that can be righted. But going back for generations, let's talk about that for just a second. Going back for for generations, many generations, back, let's go back to the formative period of this country. Let's go back to the period that is debated so much, the 1619 Project, when the first slaves arrived and built Virginia, they claim, uh, with free labor. And, and there, there was a lot of that that went on. So can't refute it that there was slave labor used in Virginia, for sure. We can even go back to that period through the late 18th century when our formative documents were constructed, were written, and were approved or ratified. We can go back to that period and see that ideologically, we as a country made lots of mistakes. And we can also admit, and I I think nowhere was this more clear than the 1960s in the Deep South in particular, We can also acknowledge that some elements of racism that were part of our country during our formative period, uh, for for example, not not the least of, of the examples, is the fact that our founding fathers, if you will, many of them were slave owners, most were wealthy in the in terms of wealth in that day and that they owned land or owned businesses or owned both and they were white. And some were Christians, some were not, some were deists, and, and, and there, there was quite a, a mixture 
ideologically or theologically in, in the room in Philadelphia when we had the successful effort to write and ratify the U.S. Constitution in the 1780s. So yes, we had an environment that led to, that created a culture that had elements of racism in it. And I think we have to admit that. We have to acknowledge that. And we have to acknowledge that, especially in the Deep South, that continued through the 1960s and even the 1970s, and dare I say, even continues in some cases, in some ways, today. Now, I didn't just say that there is institutional racism uh, that is just intrinsic in, in all of our institutions, but, but we are still flawed, fallen people, and we can acknowledge that there is still some racism in society, and I think we as Christians need to understand that. However, I took a few minutes and went to the Black Lives Matter website. So I have friends, I want to say on either side of the aisle, I have friends who rip the aisle up and and thankfully don't even see the world that way, but I have friends with disparate views on on these matters, and I'm sure you do as well. And so I think it's it's important to dispense with this fear of saying, I don't support the Black Lives Matter organization. I think white people are now afraid to even say that. And so I'm going to say it. I don't support the Black Lives Matter organization. I do, however, support the sentiment, as I'm sure you do, that Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to wave a banner that says all lives matter because that can be offensive to some, although the sentiment is certainly true, isn't it? So I'm not looking to alienate groups of people or pick a fight, but I want to be honest about the fact that I cannot support the Black Lives Matter organization. The organization found at blacklivesmatter.com is not an organization that I'm comfortable supporting. But I do believe that all lives matter, black lives matter. So if you go to their website and you click on the about tab, then you see that black lives matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murder. Black lives matter. The global network is a global organization in the U S UK and Canada and I'm reading directly, and I quote directly from the website, whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. And they go on to explain that they are expansive. They affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folks. I'm quoting disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum, the gender spectrum, the gender spectrum, just to go ahead and offend another huge element in our society The gender spectrum consists of two genders, male and female, just the way God created them. The rest is all confusion, sadly, and is all theologically and ideologically wrong. Just to say it clearly. That's not to say that we can't love our transgender friends, that we can't love our bisexual and homosexual friends. Uh, We absolutely are are charged with doing so. But anyway, back to the website. The It says, we're working for a world where black lives are no longer systemically targeted for demise. We affirm our humanity, our contributions to this society, and on and on it goes. There are some places here on their website where they share their seven demands. Interestingly, it's under the resources tab and it's BLM demands. And I want to tell you about these demands. The first one 
you can add your name to this petition like thing on the website that to co-sign BLM seven demands. And here's what they are. Convict and ban Trump from future political office. They talk about the fact they're joining Ilan Omar, Presley, Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman, and others who are demanding Trump be immediately convicted in the United States Senate. He must also be banned from holding elective office in the future. Call your members of Congress, blah, blah, blah. Number two, expel, <laughs> expel Republican members of Congress who attempted to overturn the election and incited a white supremacist attack. Now, there are so many presuppositions in that tenet, in that demand number two. Expel Republican members of Congress who attempted to overturn the election and incited a white supremacist attack. First of all, there is a method explained very clearly, delineated very clearly in the U.S. Constitution for removing, for impeaching members of Congress. They must do that themselves. They are required to self-police. And there's a reason for that. We talked about it back when we discussed the Constitution a couple of months ago. We talked about the fact that there's this separation of power and, and these checks and balances, and it is essential that the president or some other authority not be able to reach into Congress and remove members. But this tenet too says, expel members of Congress who attempted to overturn the election. Now, I... I'm not aware of, of any members of Congress who attempted to overturn the election. I, I'm aware of some people who said, hey, this didn't seem to be fair. And I'm sure you can find some tape of some recording of some people in Congress who, who said they didn't like the election and the process. But I'm not aware of people who actually attempted to overturn it. And then it goes on and incite it. So they both... So here we go. We're going to expel members of Congress, which is not constitutional, who attempted to overturn the election. That's quite an assumption. And, not or, and incited a white supremacist attack. Now, were there white supremacists on the grounds of the Capitol or at that speech that former President Trump did that day on January 6th of 2021? I don't know. Probably. Probably if you go to a shopping mall and or go to a football game, you have a hundred thousand people there. Some of them probably white supremacists. I mean, could there, could there be a few there? Yep, yes, I guess. I guess that's still a thing. But to suggest that members of Congress and all of those attackers or a significant number were white supremacists is kind of out there a little bit. The third demand: launch a full investigation into the ties between white supremacy and the Capitol Police law enforcement, and the military. Now, okay, fine. You can't object to that one, really. A full investigation, that sounds fine. Uh, but, but what is that? Into the ties between white supremacy. Now, now that, it's got to be real white supremacy, I think. And the Capitol Police, law enforcement, and the military? And then they go on to say the Capitol was able to be breached and overrun by white supremacists attempting to disrupt a political process that is fundamental to our democracy. Well, it's actually a republic with some democratic characteristics in election, but that's fine. We know that police departments have been a safe haven for white supremacists to hide malintent behind a badge because the badge was created for that purpose. We also know off-duty cops and military were among the mob at the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know. I didn't hear that. I don't know whether that's true or not. Guilty parties need to be held accountable and fired. They're supporting Jamal Bowman's COOP Act to investigate these connections. All right. Permanently ban Trump from all digital media platforms. Well, now, here's where it gets interesting because I am not an ardent Donald Trump supporter. I'm not a Make America Great Again hat-wearing guy. I believe some of his policies were good, but wow, his mouthing off on social media was probably responsible for his political demise. And some of you are screaming right now, he's not gone. His demise hasn't happened. He's coming back. Well, I hope not, frankly. And no, I didn't just endorse the current administration. And no, I won't vote for the current administration. But I'm also going to be realistic about Donald Trump and his social media nonsense that he spewed and worse that he spewed. However, 
he should not be banned from all digital media platforms. That is absurd. Who's the authority that does that? Now, the courts ultimately decide. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of these matters. On what basis would you ban Trump from all digital media platforms? Is it the fact that he exaggerates, that he uses hyperbole, that he's crass, that he's political, that he caricatures the other side? I mean, if, if those are the standards, then my goodness, we're going to ban social media. We're going to ban most of it. If we're just after truth-telling in a sterile way on social media, my goodness, we're going to have to ban way more than just former President Trump. I get the rallying cry. I would imagine that some of these demands are designed to, and this will make them angry, but designed to raise funds, to rally the base, to rally the woke, to scare the woke into compliance, to make the woke feel like they've got to be more woke and got to engage. Otherwise, they're, remember, supporting white supremacy, bigotry, and racism. Anyway, item five, defund the police. They, they say it. Defund the police. Well, how's that working? Even the hint of it, even with police officers leaving these inner city police forces to retire, even before we get to any actual defunding the police in a serious way, and I I guess it has happened in a couple of cities in a serious way, but even before you get to that, these other measures that have reduced the size of the police force have hurt this constant battle against crime. And this goes back to our theology. It goes back to who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man. Man is born in sin. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. If not 50 other places, in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. He brings 14 counts using judicial language and convicts man of being sinful. If we believe that man is basically good and does not need policing, then great, defund the police. I'm all about efficiency. If you want to do efficiency exercises, if you want to repurpose funds that, that where it just makes more sense to do so, great. But if what you're saying when you say defund the police is reduce the size of police forces and reduce policing in cities that already have huge crime rates and particularly murder rates growing per capita, then you're just wrong. You're not using critical thinking skills. So there's more here in this category to talk about, but in the interest of time, we're going to move on. The police are designed to, their purpose is to protect and serve. So Black Lives Matter is is making an argument to defund the police. They say more funding is not the solution. Number six is don't let the coup be used as an excuse to crack down on our movement. So don't restrict us. Well, I, I would just challenge Black Lives Matter, and it's hard to tell you know, what they're really behind and not behind in terms of protests and mob violence and the like. But I would tell Black Lives Matter and groups like this that the only time your movement should be cracked down on is when it breaks the law. You don't get this subjective standard for truth in administering your your in trying to accomplish and in, in living out in seeking your objectives. You just don't get to do that. You don't say this get to say this is our truth and we're going to loot these stores. Now I'm not sure Black Lives Matter endorses the looting of stores. I hope they don't. But other groups do. Other groups have burned down buildings in protests. Other groups have harmed people, even killed people as kind of collateral damage while trying to get their point across. So, of course, we, we need to crack down on your movement if you're part of that. But if you're not breaking the law, and I just disagree with you, You've got a First Amendment right for free speech as long as you're not violating other law. And I support your right to exercise free speech. I support your right to peacefully protest. I don't support your right to incite mob breaking of the law and even violence. 
Number seven is pass the breathe act. They make the claim here. This is, this, this gets really exciting. The police were born out of slave patrols. We cannot reform an institution built upon white supremacy. So policing itself is flawed. They're saying we need a new radical approach to public safety and community investment. So we're going to send counselors into the streets to negotiate to muffins and coffee to gangbangers, I guess. I'm not quoting from their website now. President Biden, I am now though. President Biden has already drawn on the Breathe Act and his executive actions calling for racial equity screens in federal programs. Get that? Equity, not equality. Investing in environmental justice at historic levels. Environmental justice. And engaging with system-impacted communities. The Breathe Act paints a vision of a world where black lives matter through investments in housing, education, health, and environmental justice. So I think it's a fundraising document. I know they're going to be insulted if they hear that, but it's a fundraising document. They're using all kinds of subjective nebulous language to rally support for something. But at its core, these seven points at their core are offensive. They're not something that I can support. If you go to their about tab and look at what they're really about and look at these seven demands in the, in the context of, of that, of who they are. And I, I can't support this movement. Now, I, I, as I said before, I, I believe that black lives matter. Yes, they do. And I'm not going to wave a banner in their face to say that all lives matter. Although all lives do matter. I think we ought to be careful with how we talk, how we engage on these topics. I've been about as forceful as I'm comfortable being, about as opinionated as I'm comfortable being on this topic, because I think we as Christians have to look very carefully at how we respond to all of the above. And I want to talk about that in our few minutes we have remaining together here. So we said last time that racism develops as a result of the sin of partiality. And, the, and the, I, I want to be clear, the sin of partiality, and I think we read from James 2 last time, my brother show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And if you say, well, you know, I don't do that, or I, I don't bear false witness, you actually do. I actually do. We are guilty of partiality. We prefer people who are like us. We are not impartial. We have biases. Now, there are some households, and I'm blessed to get to work with some people. And I mentioned one family, kind of, sort of. I didn't name them, but I, I referenced them because I said there's a young man named Sam in one of my classes. Well, well, they are a biracial family by design. And they might, the parents might be able to make this claim that they don't have partiality in this regard. Most of us, though, really shouldn't make that claim. Because that, that's probably offensive. If, if I, I grew up white and I, you know, here's, here's a cliche, you know, some of my best friends are black, but I can't pretend to have walked in their shoes. I've tried to do that because I have an inquisitive mind and I want to know what that's like. I want to imagine what, what it's like to get pulled over just for the color of my skin. And I'm not saying that happens a lot, but it happens. So I am guilty of the sin of partiality. Now, where, where I'm guilty of this is socioeconomically. And we say, oh my goodness, I, when I read those imperatives in scripture and I don't give preference to the person that looks all spiritual and they take the best seats and they wear the best clothing and and you say, oh, I would never do a thing like that. Well, yeah, yeah, we do it all the time. We do it in very small ways, but I think we do it. I think we make assumptions about people based on what they look like or their education level or the way they're dressed. I'm not even talking about race right now, necessarily. But to go back to race for a moment, the, this underlying sin of racism, this thing that we do when we commit, when we actually exercise racism, when we actually show a bias toward, uh, either positive or negatively, toward race, 
we're actually committing the underlying sin of hatred. First John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, that sounds fairly straightforward, doesn't it? But we don't like applying it here under the sin of racism. So I think the answer for us Christians is to recognize that, yep, there's this sin of partiality, and and it can go much further than just racism. And there's also the sin of racism is the fact that the sin of racism is equal to the sin of hatred. And then third, it also falls under this, this broader category of injustice. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, I cringe whenever I hear someone say, well, I'm all about justice. I want to quickly say, well, no, you're, you're actually not. You're all about grace and mercy. Because if you want God's justice, he, he must punish your sin with death. But if you want his grace and mercy, that's available to you by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. But racism does fall under the sin of injustice, this sin of not practicing equality, not treating people with equal opportunity. It can also be seen, racism can, as the sin of bearing false witness, as we talked about last time. And that is quoted from Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor in several places in the, in the New Testament. So, so critical race theory, although there is an underlying problem, there is an underlying challenge, there is underlying sin related to racism that can enter our lives and, and has entered our society here in the U.S. and other countries, in particular in the U.S., although that's true, Critical race theory, writ large, is not compatible with Christianity for several reasons. It, it presents a fundamentally flawed way of knowing, epistemology. It rejects transcendent, objective truth. It rejects who God is in all of his glory. And it does so by rejecting objective truth as a binding standard for all people, The purpose of the law in the Old Testament, and we've said it here many times, is to reveal to us who God is, to show us who he is, to be our school teacher, to inform us on his character. It does not give us a checklist for ourselves because it it presents a standard that we can't meet. That standard is who God is, and we need to be clear on that. So, The Bible doesn't limit the sins of partiality, hatred, injustice, or bearing false witness to those in power, thus making the definition of racism as prejudice plus power. So there's this mischaracterization that critical race theory does of of the facts. The Bible explicitly forbids mob rule and deference to the poor or oppressed. And if you look at it logically, When mob rule takes over and these protests and violence, the violence occurs, it actually isn't helping anyone who's poor or who is in the oppressed class, according to critical race theorists. The Bible characterizes all of humanity within this default state, within the sinful state of Adam. So, therefore... Theologically, white people are not born any more guilty than racial minorities. And racial minorities are not born more innocent than whites. White people are not born guilty of the sins of past generations. Can we acknowledge them? And should we? Yes. But people who who just happen to not have the same skin color are not as us, white people, are still going to give an account for our sin. As we look at at who man is, so we have historical sin where uh, there were, yes, there were slave owners, and yes, there was public policy influenced by that, and 
And yes, we didn't include women and and racial minorities in our voting and so on. Each of those people uh, are, are going to be held uh, accountable. Uh, we, we, are, we are accountable for our sin, and that is sin, and we should feel free to say that. But tearing down monuments and going back and revisiting previous generations is, and thinking that we owe reparations or can somehow rectify this sin is actually a, a form of arrogance, isn't it? It's actually to even suggest that we can go back 80, 100, 200 years even to correct sins of the past with money or tearing down statues or changing signs or whatever is actually a a, a form of arrogance, a form of man's sin of self-reliance. The Bible does not frame inequality of outcomes between different people groups as something inherently wrong as critical race theory does. It's really important to get this this equity and equality issue, to understand that it is possible to have equality with different outcomes. And I took the bold step of mentioning the the NBA and its racial composition last time. I, I think that's actually good for the game. I don't think a sports league of any kind needs to necessarily racially represent society in terms of equity, equity of outcomes, equity of participation. So the Bible goes further though, and it it forbids evil suspicions. It forbids this squaring off into groups and treating people differently or looking at another person's sin and, and assuming that they're worse than we are. So critical race theory addresses the wrong problem. It, It will never This Black Lives Matter group and others like it will never, using this theory, this oppressed versus the oppressor, will never end racism and won't accomplish anything, really, from a biblical perspective. We've got to battle racism the right way. Diversity is important, and it's important in the church. We've got to engage with people who are not like us in an open-minded way. We've got to have dialogue, not separation. In fact, we should be part of the multi-ethnic church. And I I know there are limits to what we can do based on, on the way towns are populated for now, but I think David Platt, at least in the early days, in his book Radical, kind of had it right. We should go invest in the inner city. We should, Christians don't get a pass just because we disagree with critical race theory and we disagree with Black Lives Matter and other organizations. We we don't get a pass here. The most rewarding thing that we could do is the thing that would would put a dent in this problem, and that is engage together with people who aren't like us. There should be nothing that gives us more pleasure than loving our fellow man, loving our neighbor as ourselves, thereby glorifying God. That's what we're put here on this earth to do. Now, I'm talking to me. I'm not lecturing you because I struggle with this. And I'll tell you where this really is best summarized. If you look at Romans 1 and all the sexual sin that is mentioned, and I'm not going to read it because this isn't really a, a Bible study podcast, But if you go back to Romans 1 and the hardness of heart that Paul talks about that happens as a result of sin, I think that's what we ought to focus on. You know, that's a way that we exercise our self-reliance. I don't believe in the way God has laid this world out and I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to do what I want to do. If it feels good, I'm going to do it and I'm going to get pleasure from it. Now, I, I lived that life. I made the mistake of buying into that ideology. And when I read, I shudder when I read Romans 1. It even, interestingly, talks about gossip and disobedient parents in there near the end of that chapter. But the, the important point is that our sin, habitual, continued sin, particularly sexual sin, can create hardness of heart, the inability to know that we're doing wrong. But then Paul captures everybody else in Romans 2 when he says the moralist, the person who believes they can be good enough, they can do right enough to gain God's favor, 
they are also condemned. And then in chapter three, he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's this group that sins outwardly. And then there's another group that says, no, I am superior to them. I have a checklist and I keep that checklist. My righteousness comes from my my good works. So I think as we look at critical race theory, as we look at critical theory in general, this Marxism, and we say, well, how could anybody, and I've said this, and I'm guilty of saying this, how could anybody embrace this ideology? Well, because we're self-reliant sinners, and it sounds appealing to self-reliant sinners. I mean, should it surprise us that critical race theory is a thing, that Marxism is a thing, that there are those politically in our country, and when I say there are those, there are significant numbers who, who support uh, socialism? No. No, it makes sense to a self-reliant center. So what this should do for us, Christian, is turn us to the gospel. Turn us to scripture. Make us love the Lord our God with all our heart. It should push us in that direction. It should grow us spiritually. It should, for my Presbyterian friends, it should improve our sanctification. There's a wonderful opportunity here for us to look at critical race theory, recognize its fallacies, but recognize the hole that we have, the holes that we have in our society still from a racial standpoint and our need to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is not optional. This is part of who we are. We are not isolationists. We are not separatists. We should lock arms together and grow in grace, in God's grace. We'll talk more about this in coming episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting Relentless Truth. I know I've said some things that are difficult to hear. They're difficult for me to say because I certainly don't want to be guilty of hypocrisy. I am grateful for God's mercy and grace in my own life. It is only by his grace that I'm able to even share these truths. I hope the underlying ideology discussion is helpful. I hope these big ideas that we're talking about are helpful. If you have questions or I've caused concerns with my clumsy rambling, I want to hear from you. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com. And uh, or send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. It is so good to be with you, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.